Welcome to the Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. Each week, we're going to be here to educate you, challenge you, encourage you along your journey with intermittent fasting. You can check us out on fastinglane.com and on Twitter at fastinglane. Our guest this week is Dr. Nadir Ali, and he is an interventional this is very fancy word, interventional cardiologist with over 25 years of experience. He's also the chairman of the Department of Cardiology at Clear Lake Regional Medical Center outside of Houston, Texas. Dr. Ali, thank you so much for joining me. I'm absolutely delighted, Eve, and I'm looking forward to you coming to Low Carb Houston, sharing your story with us and, and sharing the time with us. I can't wait, Dr. Ali. Let me tell you guys a little bit about Dr. Ali. Dr. Ali is actually the organizer behind Low Carb Houston. It is a transformational experience. It welcomes community members as well as medical doctors, nurses, scientists, public policymakers, and other allied health practitioners. He is a keto cardiologist, basically, but the very first event, the very first low carb event I ever went to in my entire life was Low Carb Houston in 2018, last year, and I had begun a journey because of Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos and the obesity code. And the first journey where I got to experience doctors and professionals and success cases and researchers and everyday people living a low carb lifestyle, eating in a way that had changed their life with keto, talking about how fasting did things for them. The first time I ever got to experience this was at your event last year, Dr. Ali. Was that the first low-carb Houston in 2018? It was, and uh, uh, even though I am saying it, I think it was a resounding success. And the registration this year is almost double that of last year. I think that hopefully there will not be an empty seat in the 500 or so bio theater at uh, University of Houston Clear Lake. And so I'm really excited. Uh, there's a lot of robust participation. The speaker lineup could not be better. Dr. Jason Fung's group is so nicely represented out there. Uh, Megan Ramos is going to be there. Uh, Brenda Zahn is going to do, as you know, a three-day fast uh, with 10 people at the conference. And Keto Mojo has donated um, ketone meters, uh, so that we'll be tracking their blood sugars, their ketone levels, their blood pressure, heart rate. And Brenda is going to kind of present their progress every day at the conference. Well, I love that. I tell you what, I, I when I went last year, I was not aware that that was y'all first time doing that. I remember the thoughts I had when I went. Number one, I thought this was really inexpensive for how much information and the level of speakers and researchers I'm getting access to. That was the first thought I had. And then the second thought was, there are a lot of people here I'm talking to that are just so passionate and have been living this way for six months, six years, 20 years, and improving their health and just able to talk with people they, they usually only get to access online are on books. And I thought the event was just really well done. Um, it was a nice mix at Low Carb Houston of medical professionals, success cases, and people that were speaking about things that really moved them. 
I initially heard about it through Megan Ramos from, from uh, IDM program.com and was very into fasting. And, and she had also opened my eyes to mo more low carb information. Um, and I just really enjoyed all the speakers and we're super excited to come back and, and see it again. And, and I don't know, I feel kind of like in the group now. I remember when I went last year, I was kind of like, I'm so new to this. I've only been doing this like, you know, 10 months. Now I'm a year and 10 months in, into it. And I feel like I'm a pro and I just get, keep getting <laughs> hotter and healthier, Dr. Ali. I can't explain it. Can you believe I'm 45? Don't answer oh, you that. Look, you, you, look, you look awesome. And um, I must say that all the animal food that you're eating is helping your appearance a lot. And uh, the collagen in it, uh, as you know, is, keeps the skin healthy, the hair healthy. So um, you personify and you show all the exuberance and the intensity and the vigor uh, that other people should pursue the kind of lifestyle that you are trying to promote. Well, Dr. Ali, you are so kind. And right after we hang up on this podcast, I'm going to eat a big steak with my husband. So I'm super excited about that. I want to hear more about you, okay? Um, you are, you have this background in medicine extensively. And I want to know, like, of all the things you can pick when you could go into medicine, what made you decide at the beginning to become a cardiologist? Why did you do that? Well, um, you know, I grew up in India. And whenever... A uh, young kid in India thinks about a physician, they think about the physician as a cardiologist because, you know, the physician comes with a stethoscope and they listen to the heart. So I've always been fascinated by cardiology. And, uh, you know, I've been extremely lucky because I've been a cardiologist now for 30 years. Wow. And, uh, so I've had a, a, a beautiful, I mean, I would say a, a very a fulfilling career. I've done interventions in which you open up blood vessels that are blocked in patients who are suffering from chest pain, who come in having a heart attack. And I've done that for the last 30 years. And uh, it's even though that has been a fulfilling journey, and really I was very passionate about it, over the last six years, I find myself getting less and less passionate about that because I've discovered six years ago as to how nutrition and lifestyle can have such a strong impact that, you know, it's taken me away from a skill set that I have honed for about 25 to 30 years to then now hone this different skill set in which I say, hey, I'm really contributing to my patients. I love I'm that. making a difference in their life. And I am relevant because I do things that make people healthier. Dr. Ali, so, that is incredibly beautiful. First of all, I can't believe you've been doing this for 30 years because you look very, very young. So nice job. Um, but I think that's a real interesting point that you bring up because I think people who are not doctors tend to look at doctors in such a way that we believe they know everything about everything. And for example, I am a professional speaker and a marketer, and I know a lot about marketing, but I don't know 
really great programmatic marketing. I don't know a lot about billboard marketing. I know a lot about digital marketing. And for someone to think that I would know all of it is a ridiculous assumption. Somehow, I think that when we look at doctors, we make these ridiculous assumptions that they know everything about everything. And I think what I've learned over the past two years is that doctors, for the most part, I believe, want to help patients, want to move them forward, but are often most equipped with knowledge on how to solve disease that has already happened and not focused on wellness education to prevent disease from happening. And I understand that. I understand why we need both sides of it. What are your thoughts on that? Is that, is that something you see? Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think, unfortunately, um, physicians have either no knowledge or very rudimentary knowledge of nutrition. Uh, you can take me, for example, uh, six years ago, I did not want to see a patient in the office because I was so disillusioned. I would say that reducing people's cholesterol did not make a difference. The blood pressure medicines don't make a difference. Uh, patients are becoming increasingly diabetic, increasingly obese, and there is nothing that works. And so I did not want to see a single patient in the office. I would tell my colleagues, you see them in the office because nothing that I do in the office works. When they come to the hospital with a blockage or if they have a heart attack, I'll fix them in the cardiac cath lab. I'm good at doing that. Let me not see patients in the office. Wow. So um, this enlightenment came about from my own personal journey with nutrition. And when I learned a few things, then I kept exploring and kept exploring. And what I know now, after six years of clinical practice, and, and I don't mean this lightly because for the last six years, on an average, I come across between 30 and 50 patients a day. Wow. And I have been employing the same hypothesis, the same information that I have obtained from nutrition and keep refining it and keep improving it, not only from my clinical experience, but from review of literature, from my interaction with different colleagues, like Jason Fung, like Megan Ramos, like Dave Feldman, like Ivor Cummins. And you couldn't be more right because the people who know more about nutrition and healthcare may not necessarily be physicians as far as it comes to chronic diseases because all this information is available for the entire world to look at, for you to look at, for me to look at. And whoever puts in the effort, whoever uses their mind, whoever applies it on a day-to-day -day basis in their interaction with other people is the one who would be an expert at that. So fortunately, medical knowledge, as far as treatment of chronic diseases is concerned, is no longer the prerogative of the physician or the healthcare worker. Everybody has a right to it. And I'm so happy because of that, because 
we are all going to improve. Now, by that, I don't mean that if you break a bone, I don't want you to try to go to a non-expert. I want an orthopedic doctor to fix your bone. If you're having a heart attack, I want you to come to me because I can put in a stent and, and protect you from the damage from the heart attack. Yeah. But as far as chronic diseases are concerned, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, lipid disorders, I think that medicine is sorely lacking in terms, what, in terms of what they are doing to the American population and to the rest of the world. I, I, thank you for sharing all that. And you know, a lot of times we will hear people disparage technology and talk about, oh, technology and social media, it's ruining the world, it's doing all these things. And I, I see bad things that happen with technology like any tool or advancement we have in this world, but I also see good things. And one good thing that I see is the disbursement of information on nutrition. And that doesn't mean that every site is right and every site is good and every site is trustworthy. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I think in this country and in several countries, there has not been readily available information about low carb or keto or fasting that was from a source we could believe in or I had tested it or I had looked at it without some kind of really strong financial gain motivating that. And I think that now technology has enabled us to have access to that information. And I have been seeing doctors my entire life who have done many wonderful things for me and helping me with the ailments I had, but were who were unable through all their best efforts through all the diets and the therapy and the suggestions of bariatric surgery three times to help me get the information that would work for me. And I don't think that my solution of low carb and keto and fasting is the solution for every person, but I do think it is a viable option that should be considered and is free when we're talking about fasting, which means that it is accessible by all economic groups. So my goal for our life in the fasting lane. One of those goals is just the education and the facts about this option. So someone can explore it. I've had a couple of friends who have tried fasting. Um, sometimes I wish maybe they tried it a little bit longer and it just wasn't for them. It just wasn't the solution for them. There were other things that they found more effective. I have some friends that do fasting and they are vegetarians. I, that is not my way, but it is the way that they found the solution for themselves. And, and so I think that we have different bodies and different minds and different religions and different cultures that all need to be looked at and considered and explored. But in the end, we decide when we put a piece of cake in our mouth. We decide if we put a steak in our mouth. There's no doctor ever going to sit there and tell us to put more of that or less of that into our mouth. And we have to live in the body that we have and, and understand how we feel. Um, anyway, I got off on a tangent. Let's talk to you. Okay. Tell me with all this, seeing all these people in these the six years, of this, what impact does a ketogenic diet have on cardiovascular health in your opinion? So I think, uh, it's a very good question because let's say you are using a, a nutrition that is sort of optimal for human health and a nutrition that is optimal for human health would be one that would not create a sudden surge of glycemic load or glycemic index. 
So what I mean by that is that the way our gut biology is, uh, we have an acid-based digestion. We have a very small pancreas. It's not capable of handling a large carbohydrate load or capable of handling a load that is so high in sugar that it suddenly causes an upsurge in sugar. Because the pancreas through evolutionary history always met with food that was either animal food or sort of not very refined carbs. And if you start eating that way, many of the biologic markers that you think about that improve human health get better. So almost everybody, including mainstream physicians would agree that when you go to a low carb diet, when you practice intermittent fasting, that your insulin levels will fall. That's a good thing. That your sugar levels will fall. That's a good thing. That your triglycerides, which is basically fat and blood falls. That's a good thing. That your HDL, which is one of the lipoproteins that carries cholesterol, it's called the good cholesterol. And I hesitate to call anything good or bad because everything has a biologic role, but the HDL goes up. The inflammation markers go down. You have a reduction in your weight. You have a reduction in your blood pressure. Your heart rate improves. When you do fasting, your heart rate variability improves. So there are so many biologic markers that are improving. When you go to a diet that is relatively free of a glycemic load and a glycemic index diet, by that I mean animal food, mostly a high fat diet, mostly. The only uh, place where mainstream medicine would perhaps disagree, and maybe there are a few other places such as red meat causing cancer and processed meat causing cancer, is that the levels of LDL, which many people call it the bad cholesterol goes up. And that is where I was stuck for the first couple of years in which I was practicing this. I was seeing all these biological markers improve and yet I would see an increase in LDL and it was initially very disturbing. Yeah. And I used to think that, hey, it could be terrifying for some people because in many of, uh, in many of the lean mass hyper-responders, and I'm just throwing a term out here that we can define a little bit later, the LDL level can go up into the mid 200s, up to 300, and some people even into the five, 400s. So what was bothering me was that I didn't have a clear cut explanation as to why the LDL was going up. I could not understand whether it was good or bad. I felt that if every biologic marker is improving, <clears throat> if blood pressure is improving, if heart rate is improving, if weight is going down, if waist circumference is going down, that we are doing something good and we should either ignore the LDL or be ambivalent to it. Yeah. But now what I understand after exploring this area is that 
we have evaluated LDL in a very wrong way. Because in the beginning, I did not understand any biologic role of LDL. But now I know that there are several biologic roles that LDL plays. That's very good for us. And then to implicate LDL in the process of causing plaque, which means uh, building up uh, blockages in the blood vessels of the body, I think is fundamentally short-sighted. It is not something that has been well explored it has been an easy target for several reasons. One is that it is so enticing to think that the plaque buildup is as a result of the LDL, as a result of cholesterol. And number two is that you have drug therapy that can reliably reduce LDL. Sure. And number three is that it's a very profitable thing to do. Yeah. So uh, if I were to tell you that there is a genetic condition in which children are born without an LDL, hmm. it's called A-beta lipoproteinemia. So these individuals just don't put out any LDL from the liver. So if the LDL theory is right, these individuals should live forever. Nature has done an experiment for us, right? Right. We should take these people and say, hey, these people don't have an LDL. They should have no plaque. They should be doing something very good because we've completely eliminated the bad cholesterol. Yeah. But these individuals fail to thrive. They, they cannot live. Wow. They are blind. They have movement disorder. They have atax ataxia. They have recurrent infections. They have vitamin deficiencies, vitamin A, vitamin E deficiency, vitamin K deficiency. So when you look at this, now you begin to explore and say, hey, LDL has a biologic role. LDL is carrying these fat-soluble vitamins for me. LDL is helping me repair my cells. LDL is an important host defense. It is fighting bacteria it is fighting viruses. It's preventing me from getting infected. LDL is carrying CoQ10 for my muscles. LDL is carrying the raw materials for my ovaries and testis to make, to make testosterone and estrogens from cholesterol. So then it starts sinking into you that maybe because LDL has been such an easy target that we have put the biologic role of LDL to the side and made us think that it is bad. And that is a fundamentally flawed argument. But it's comforting, right? It's comforting if we have a number that if it goes high, we believe we can say we are at risk of X and we can solve it with this medication. It's comforting. It's a solution that we find comfort in and it helps us to deal with fear of death or heart attacks or bad health. So it's very tempting with this very accepted way. But I think when you and others are in the position to see people who are thriving in every way, 
while LDL is still elevated, that maybe we need to take a second look at deciding that is the one factor we would measure as an indicator of a possible issue. So with the six years of experience of doing this, if you had to say right now what you would measure to predict a heart attack, what would you suggest? Is, is there an answer like that out there? I have no idea. You know, I think there are uh, areas that would predict a higher risks of heart disease. And these areas, I think, in order of importance is insulin resistance. Somebody with high insulin levels, high hemoglobin A1C, high inflammation markers, poor quality cholesterol. Now, when I say poor quality cholesterol, I mean high triglycerides and low HDL. Now that's a surrogate marker for insulin resistance. Now, if you look at the clinical picture, that means you get a history if a patient is a diabetic, if they're a smoker, if they have high blood pressure, all of these things tie in very closely to insulin resistance and inflammation. They don't tie in as well to the LDL theory. So I would think that the majority of our efforts have been misplaced into thinking of LDL as a target. Whereas what we should really be doing is to think about how can we improve the biologic markers and the clinical markers by just what you are doing, which is intermittent fasting, long-term fasting, a diet that is extremely low in many individuals in uh, glycemic load and in glycemic index, which means lack of sugar and simple carbohydrates. Yeah, it does sound like, I feel like most doctors and most people can all agree, don't eat sugar or, or eat very little sugar, eat as little sugar as you can. That's the one thing I hear everybody agree on. And then as we go further, you know, people somewhat agree and somewhat disagree. I know for me, until I stopped eating sugar most of the time, until I lowered how much carb and increased how much fat, healthy fats I ate, I felt hungry every second of my life. I'm hungry right now, but I'm getting ready to eat dinner in an hour, and I'm pretty excited about it. But now I get hungry four times a day, and that never happened until I completely changed and mostly cut out carbohydrates, bread, potatoes, everything. And it was miserable. It was distracting. Now, I'm not a small person. I weigh about 189, 190. For me, this is tiny, Dr. Ali. This is a far cry from the 300 that I peaked at, and I am really happy with my body. And I think that so many people get caught up in this goal weight or this goal situation of someone else's body, someone else's experience, someone else's physiology. And without low carb and without intermittent fasting, I never would have stopped being hungry all the time, which was mentally like jail it was miserable and i never would have gotten to a weight that i feel like this is the body i'm supposed to be in so tell me about intermittent fasting do you do it do you recommend fasting to your patients how do you use it oh i i think that the human body was designed to do fasting i think our body evolved 
in an environment in which nutrients were available in an intermittent fashion. They were available at other times. We evolved with repeated episodes in which there was lack of availability of food. And so the human nutrition and human physiology evolved as if we were going to do fasting. Uh, the lipoproteins, which is the cholesterol and the fat-carrying system, is a, is a byproduct of our evolution because it is something that is meant to supply energy at times when nutrition is not really available. Our fat cells are similarly designed to provide nutrition when we are not eating. And so I almost do not recommend to anyone, even to athletes, even to myself, to have three or four meals a day and not practice intermittent fasting of some kind on a weekly basis. Like I, for example, five days a week would do an 18 hour fast on a regular basis. And on the weekends, since I cycle about three to four hours each day, I'm not able to hold on to that uh, uh, 18 six cycle. So in that I might have three meals in a course of maybe nine hours. Yeah. But otherwise I would say that almost everybody should do several days a week of, uh, you know, an 18 hour fast and at least three times a year, consider a three day fast. I love that. That's a really simple way to lay it out. Skip breakfast and a couple times a year, don't eat for three days. Like it doesn't have to be this complicated. It doesn't have to be, I think people a lot of times make fasting really complicated. Like it's easy. Stop snacking is your first step, right? Like don't, don't snack so much and then eventually skip breakfast and oh my gosh, we're calling it intermittent fasting now and you're really fancy and it's amazing. So like what results have you seen with your patients health-wise? So I, you know, like I see patients on a day-to-day -day basis and about 30 to 40% of my patients come back with weight loss, having come off several blood pressure medicines, having come off many of their diabetic medications, improvement in their sense of well-being, no increase in their risks of heart disease despite eating all the fat and the animal food. And so it's been a very gratifying experience. I can say that on a daily basis, I see patients in their 80s, in their 90s, who have lost between 20 and 50 pounds, who have left their wheelchair, who have left their walkers, who have had such a significant improvement in their quality of life. This is what makes me feel relevant. My whole team, I have five uh, medical assistants that work with me, three nurse practitioners that work with me, and they feel their life is meaningful because of what they see in the patients that come to see us. Well, I am so proud of you and your staff and happy to know you and happy to be coming back. Um, 
if you guys haven't checked out Low Carb Houston and you're in the area, it's going to be this month. Uh, when this podcast comes out, it's going to be happening a couple of days after that. Uh, Levi and I will be there. I know Megan Ramos is speaking. There are a ton of fantastic speakers. Dr. Ali, who are some of your favorite? Don't tell them. I won't tell them you said that they're, they're your favorite, but who are some of the speakers at your event that you're most excited about? Oh, I, I know. I have a crush on several of them. <laughs> so uh, Amber Ohan, I think she is uh, an amazingly thoughtful, very intelligent lady who always comes up with new paradigms, who made me explore uh, why animal sourced food is some of, it should be considered as the optimal nutrition for humans. And I have a very good argument about that after learning a lot of things from her, uh, learning a lot of things from Peter Ballerstad. As far as lipoproteins is concerned, cholesterol is concerned, I have learned a lot from Dave Feldman because he's done some singular work that has changed the entire paradigm in which we look at lipoproteins. Like for example, because I was uh, talking to him is that I found out that if I take somebody and put them through a long-term fast, like let's say we take a group of 10 people, normal people, and put them through a seven-day fast, and if their LDL cholesterol at the beginning of the fast is about 110, at the end of the seven-day fast, it'll not be lower, but it'll be higher by about 70%. It'll go up to 100, 190, so from 110 to 190. The reason for that is because the person who's fasting is eating fat. They're eating their fat stores. And when you eat fat stores, you make ketones. And when you make ketones, it's the same metabolic machinery, it's the same enzymatic machinery that's making ketones is what's making cholesterol. So by design, if you're increasing your ketone production, you're gonna increase your cholesterol production. And I have shown that not just by this clinical example, but through animal studies, through drug studies, through labeling studies that have looked at the output of the LDL cholesterol by the liver. So I know I can come up with an argument that defines that. Um, Amy Berger, she has some very enlightening information for us uh, from a standpoint of neurologic health and low-carb diet. Uh, Megan Ramos, because from her, because I used to be, to be honest with you, I used to be quite skeptical of long-term fast. And in fact, I went on record to my patient several years ago saying that I would like you to do an 18 to 24 hour fast, but beyond 18 to 24 hours, I'm not sure how much nitrogen and protein losses you're going to have. Yeah. And you may not be able to build that nitrogen and protein back up. And it is a process of evolution. It's the process of continual interaction that made me discover autophagy. Autophagy is should not be thinking about, thought about as self-eating, as eating your own self. It should be thought of as renewal, as remodeling, as rebuilding new tissue. So when you don't 
eat for three days, you're losing junk protein. You're losing the flab that is under your skin. You're losing the protein that is destined to be removed so that your brain does not age. And I did not realize that. So now I understand how long-term fasting, which promotes autophagy, is so important. So if I were not interacting with these people, I would not be learning these things. I would not be a better clinician. David Diamond is another person that comes to my mind because his way of thinking and evaluating clinical trials with cholesterol-reducing medicines and how the literature has been interpreted wrong, the way he puts it out is, is something that even a lay person can grasp and understand. Yeah, I rode in an Uber with him over when we were getting ready to go to the event last year, and the guy was just, he was just really smart. But listen, I think we are out of time, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you for, even though you're a doctor, and even though you have a lot of education, continuing down this road of education to new discoveries and being able to learn new things, to bring that to your patients and to lengthen their life. I'm amazed by you. And I loved listening to you speak because I could understand it. And when I can understand it, it means that probably almost everybody else can understand it too. So thank you for explaining things the way that you did. I can't wait to see you next week, right? I'm looking forward to it. Next Thursday, it's going to be a beautiful time in Houston. The weather is predicted to be perfect. I think Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are going to be bright sunshine without a cloud in the sky. Well, perfect. So you even ordered perfect weather for this. So this is amazing. Guys, if you haven't signed up yet, come hang out with us. We're going to be at Low Carb Houston. It's at the end of October, close to the end of October here in Houston, Texas, and meet Dr. Ali, his fabulous group of speakers, and come hang out with us. Dr. Ali, thank you for being on the show. I love it, Eve. Thank you for having me on the show, and I'm honored. It was such a pleasure. And everybody, thanks so much for being here on the Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. You can get more tips on fasting, keto, and low carb at fastinglane.com. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fasting Lane. Until next time, to your health and hotness.